Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. On this episode of Venture Stories, Eric is joined by Jesse Janae, co-founder and CEO of Lumi. As for what Lumi does, we'll let Jesse take it away. At Lumi, we help modern brands source and manage all of their packaging that helps their supply chain tick. So think of all the direct-to-consumer brands you're probably familiar with, like FabFitFun, Casper, MeUndies, Parachute Home. We're the packaging partner that's helping them manage everything that they need to run their companies except for the product itself. And they do that in their online dashboard. Uh, and we support them with a global network of manufacturing capacity to make all the different things they need from tissue paper to boxes to packing slips. It's kind of a niche or like very specific idea to pursue, like esoteric. Why? Like out of all the things you could, you've been an entrepreneur for like over a decade, out of all the things you could have pursued, why that? Yeah, I think that when you find out that there's like a small group of people in LA dedicating their lives to like packaging supply chain for e-commerce, it is like, what happened to these people? <laughs> like, how did they land there? And I think that my background and my co-founder, Stefan, um, we met studying industrial design. And so how things look, like how things look when they arrive to customers, how brands present themselves, we always thought that was super important. And the first thing we did was start a company that sounds even more niche. So... <laughs> So if you think this idea is niche, my co-founder and I, for four and a half years of our lives, ran a fabric dye business that was a DIY product. It's a fabric dye that develops its color in sunlight. Very niche market, okay? And But the reason that that's relevant, it was like we're kind of part of the early maker movement. We launched that product on Kickstarter, sold it to retail and online. Really early users of Shopify, Square, Stripe, like in those early days of launching that business. And I think that we learned the hard way how difficult it was to bring a product to market. And so this company is like us building out our dream project of like, what if someone had made that easier for us? <laughs> what if like the four years of toil and strife where like we almost brought like flirted with bankruptcy over like misordering things or whatever? What if that was different later um, and for other companies and, you know, through a variety of decisions and learning from the brands we work with, like, here's what we land. You're trying to do what AWS did for bits for Adams. Um, something that I sometimes say is you can't, you can't eat bits for breakfast. I literally say that. <laughs> Which makes me sound insane, but it, it's to illustrate a point that, that we still live in a very physical world. So as much as all of us, especially maybe as entrepreneurs want to like run even companies where we're like, I could go, you know, run my company on a beach, like on a laptop. I couldn't really do that. Like we need to have this like physical manufacturing capacity. We need to network with all this. Like we ship, you know, truckloads and pallets of stuff. But that's how our world operates. Like, you know, every startup that we're helping, every company that we provide packaging for, they're serving elemental aspects of your life, like mattresses, toothpaste. Like, you you can't have a digital toothpaste yet. I'm sorry. <laughs> so if you're going to have a real toothpaste, you're going to need it to come in a box. <laughs> so I'm, I'm Casper. What do I use Lumi for? So if you're a brand, you typically 
it's easy to look at a box and say, oh, that brand is using a box. How hard can it be to order a box? But a typical brand uses dozens of different types of packaging just to get you what you ordered from them. You open that box and there's like, you know, a drawstring bag inside. Then there's a packing slip and a sticker and tissue paper. And it might be like 12 or 15 different components all of which need to be made in a different factory. The typical way to procure this stuff is to work with packaging distributors, brokers, agencies, and effectively it's layers of middlemen that have developed over decades and decades and decades because when you're Casper and you're a specialist in sleep technology and mattresses, you aren't a specialist in corrugated boxes and yeah. all of, and paper pulp and the paper pulp markets in, you know, Taiwan and like all of the stuff that you really should know to procure these supplies properly. So it's a knowledge gap and a communication gap and also a situation where why wrangle 15 or 20 different vendors when you, what you really should be doing is focusing on running your business. Right. And so what's the secret that you felt like? Are you experts in all those 20 things? You're like, how? we're manufacturing process experts. So on hand, like on staff at Lumi, we have packaging engineers. We have material scientists. We have supply chain experts, um, who have done international logistics, you know, their whole careers. So those people are on, t- on the team. But then of course we're building software that takes these processes and standardizes them so that you can just log on to your Lumi dashboard. Um, if you're like me undies and you can check out for your different packaging items almost like it's an e-commerce interface for the brand. And so that ops person who is like harried and running around trying to solve, you know, Mandy's supply chain day to day can just packaging and everything else they need to ship their product becomes more set and forget it. Gives them a lot of leverage in how they run the company. And what's the closest analogy to what existed before Lumi? Is it like real estate agents? I mean, just like what's the... Yeah, you've got like a situation where, I mean... Freight brokerage is another one, but it's almost like too similar. It's actually maybe like travel agencies. Let's go with that, where in a world before kayak and all this stuff, you, an individual couldn't just call up American Airlines and stuff and just place a, like, just be like, I need a flight. There was a special portal that you had to have access to. So people were like, the brokers and agencies were paying or had access to this portal and only they could log in and get you special deals. So you're paying 20, 30, 40% on top of a flight cost to get access to it. That's the way many industries have developed because they're so complicated that it, it's, it's, it, the layers of abstraction have like developed and crusted over time. Just like how Kayak, you know, comes along and says, is that really necessary? Why don't you just shop the full inventory of flights? Well, in that same way of like, there's a full inventory of flights, there's a full inventory of manufacturing capacity in the world. Yeah. There, it's not fluctuating that much. The world can, has so many box factories, so many tissue paper mills. So you can make those things accessible online, um, in an easier way. Can you sort of make an actual map verbally? Like, what was the process for someone like Casper before using Lumi? Like, how, how do they ship stuff? And yeah. now how does it work? In a pre-Lumi world, uh, like head of supply chain or um, operations person at an e-commerce brand is usually managing around 10 vendors to to procure packaging. So they might have a box company they're working with, you know, someone like a paper company making hang tags or something. The way that they found those companies is sometimes the most interesting part of the process because they like were cruising Alibaba, 
They asked a friend at another company, who do you use for your hang tags? And so it's like this very webby, relationship-driven how people found vendors. That obviously charts not very well with how you should find a manufacturer because manufacturing is very specific. Like one box manufacturer might have a huge printing press that can do a mattress size box. Another one might only have small presses. So just because your friend knows someone who makes boxes is nearly irrelevant. It's like needle haystack. So in that world, brands typically end up Even when they think they're working direct, they're often working with a web of agents and brokers. I'll give an example of something else that happens still now that won't happen in a world where Lumi dominates, (laughs) which is that even the like kind of world's biggest brands, like take a brand like Amazon, Amazon gives their orders for certain types of packaging, like poly mailers or tape to various packaging distributors. Those packaging distributors turn around and give those orders to various packaging brokers who then bid the jobs out often overseas or wherever that production equipment exists. And so I think it's fascinating that even a company operating at an Amazon level has not taken away those layers because they, it's like too complicated and they'd prefer to, um, give the order to someone who seems reputable than to dig into those layers. So, but as you can imagine, there's margin like being added at every pass. And, and then it's a lot of management time. You need teams of people to manage dozens or tens or 50 vendors when it could be managed through a single interface. And this might be a silly question, but why doesn't this, this seem something Amazon would have done by now or yeah. why not? My personal thesis on why Amazon hasn't um, abstracted away those layers is that in the scheme of things, I'm I'm like estimating here, but Amazon probably has a packaging spend um, somewhere around $250 million or something a year. Um, this is an estimate. I'm, part of my like just off the cuff uh, reaction is I just think that they don't consider it to be a lot of money. <laughs> I don't think that they are putting in the work to optimize it away. They probably have... They probably have other things they could focus on that save them more money. So it's a little bit set it and forget it, which speaks to how a lot of people order everything custom and manufactured. It's set it and forget it. I found a vendor who's good enough. We see crazy things too. Other things that that, um, a lot of times startups will do, unfortunately, is like they'll get the risk of not having packaging is really risky for your business because you can't ship anything. So... People get very nervous about it and they make very irrational choices. So for instance, I, um, I can think of a startup who shall remain unnamed where like they open up a European like division and the supply chain team is so nervous about not having packaging that they ship packaging produced in the East Coast of the United States to the UK for like a year. <laughs> That's, um, from a supply chain perspective, like, Newsflash, you can make packaging in the UK too. Um, <laughs> uh, there's production capacity there as well. In a Lumi world, that would never happen. We would have a detailed spec in the dashboard. We could turn production on in a different country, continent to support a launch very seamlessly. And so that would have prevented a tremendous amount of not only economic waste, but there's another dimension to this of waste is bad um, in the sense that I think that a huge part of the Lumi mission is that the real efficiencies that can be driven through mitigating out middlemen isn't just economic waste and money. It's that they're not incentivized to make smart choices. So who pays the cost when, you know, of like emissions and stuff doing that move where you just, where you move pro like 
boxes from the East Coast of the US to UK. Um, it's kind of a bloody environmental story too. So when you when you think about Lumi's take over the world plan, yeah. talk a little bit about that and why is like obviously if Amazon believed that same vision of the world, they would want to build it, right? Or, or other other people who have more assets, yeah. more resources. I'm curious, one, what the take of the world plan is, and then two, what is sort of the crux of the difference of belief between you and and bigger players who aren't doing this? Yeah. So I think um I think it's really helpful to understand the landscape of how how do people find manufacturers now? Like what are your options, right? And one one thing that's kind of interesting to realize is because of the extreme proliferation of agencies and brokerages and stuff, it's actually so commonplace. Like if you just search on Google or on like ThomasNet, which is a in, you know manufacturing kind of market like directory or like Yellow Pages, on average, eighty to ninety percent of what you find are brokers and agencies and not manufacturers. So that's one way people find these things. Like that's one vehicle. The 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 business models that have emerged to try to kind of like solve this problem, like how do you help brands and companies find manufacturers? Um, like Alibaba would be a big one. They're doing pretty well. Um, <laughs> so, but and and their original business model, but they're doing pretty well. But I also think that we have a fundamentally different thesis that I'm very bullish on. So I'm not. So anyway, let me say this like gently. But but I think Alibaba has a model where it technically connects you with manufacturers, typically in China, although they're pretty global as well. The way that they, that they make money is through advertising, core. They have a lot of business models, but core is the manufacturers pay advertising to get placement to be discovered. Any platform that that works like that, it's almost become similar to Yellow Pages and like preferred listings and all this stuff um, where... Now, the people who are the best at self-promotion are the people who are discovered. Well, especially when you introduce international elements and stuff, a lot of times the people who are best at getting discovered aren't the manufacturers at all. It's the agents that speak English and stuff are getting discovered on Alibaba, and the American person thinks they found a manufacturer. So I think you've got some models um, emerging, and I think that what we feel is that until you actually help the brand codify the specifications of what they're trying to order. And then you have a data-driven way of matching those specifications with a facility. That is technically the only way to jump over this Goliath problem of relationship-driven, you know, loudest voice gets the order way of like matching with a factory. And and so that's something, you know, we have various ways that we work on that. Um, we also handle the transaction from start to start to finish, meaning you order from Lumi, Lumi is the trusted source, you pay Lumi. Um, we are very upfront that we work with manufacturers all over the world, but we are able to aggregate demand and we have cost models for negotiation that allow us to hit price floors below what the brands can get alone. So we are able to truly provide a win-win where we handle the transaction from beginning to end. You could go in your Lumi dashboard and order, and we might be ordering things from like 10 different countries to service the growth of your brand. But now that just takes a few clicks instead of like hair-raising nights on WeChat. <laughs> so uh, I'm curious to hear more about how packaging has evolved over time and particularly what what sort of external factors have enabled Lumi's time to come as a as a business? Like, could Lumi have been possible 10 years ago? Or, you know, how has that evolved? Well, 
I think there's always, there's always been a problem with how manufacturers and brands and companies connect, but this is an incredible time to start Lumi and be running Lumi because of a few macro trends also at play. So I believe e-commerce is happening. I think, I think that as, as funny as it is to say that because it sounds like super obvious, maybe especially. But it's still only like 10% or? It's still, yeah. It? Yeah, it's uh, sub 15%, I think yeah. still of like retail purchases. So that's, that's small yeah. in the scheme of things. And think about that, the impact of that on the packaging industry. One, it means the fundamental usage of packaging is changing. It, it, you know, more packaging than ever is going directly to people's homes. The packaging industry is in a state of a lot of flux. Anytime there's an industry in tremendous flux, there's some opportunity. E-commerce is a monster trend that I think is only going to like engulf more and more, um, economic activity, which means a certain future for packaging. Um, and then on top of that, the other thing that makes this a really cool time to be running a packaging supply chain company is that by focusing on packaging, we're able to do business across every product vertical, right? Like we can sell packaging, but work with like a candy company, a bra company. What's defensible about it? Like why can't I and like 10 other really smart people raise yeah. some money and do what you're doing? Like what do you, and why aren't you getting squashed? Yeah. I think that's a great question. I think that it definitely is one of the these areas that has been overlooked due to a layer of it seeming boring in in the in the industry sense of like not everyone wakes up and goes like I'm going to make a huge change to the packaging and supply chain space. But then it's it's not just boring, it's also hard. <laughs> it's boring and hard, which I think creates a really nice like defensible like right. little corner of the universe. Because the hard parts are you cannot be good at making change in this space if you don't have a tremendous respect for the people using the product, the brands, people trying to grow companies. I think there's a lot of people out there who have that respect. You also have to have in equal measure a tremendous amount of respect and understanding of the manufacturers. We have had manufacturers come and give um, talks at Lumi and like explain how they're the fifth generation in their family running a box plant. They own, they have over the course of 45 years acquired like four facilities. And so now they've got like a regional stronghold and they become like a key element in a vendor network for us that is thousands of manufacturers strong. But these people have a really hard job to do. They operate on very low margins. And you have to understand the dynamic between the two groups. Why have these two groups historically have a very hard time communicating? Why is there so much subcontracting? Um, why does even a company like Amazon have to work through distributors and brokers to get this stuff done? And I think you have to respect both sides of the equation. And then you have to have a really good detailed understanding of how all the manufacturing processes work. Boxes are printed with a process called flexographic printing. Um, it's like a big rubber stamp process, basically on a drum that prints boxes. You have to go deep on understanding everything about how flexographic print press works to properly spec things out so that you could make a box that looks the same in Kentucky or the UK or China and have that brand have like consistent look. 
When you mix all this stuff together, it's a soup of passion for manufacturing processes, <laughs> how manufacturers operate, how brands grow and thrive, mix in design sensibility so that people trust you with their supply chain and like this very focal point of their brand. It's like, long story short, I don't know exactly why no one's done it, but the more I work on it, the more I know why. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like it's it's really hard. Like there's like and a the lot of is industry knowledge. Yeah, knowledge about how these products, actual products that we sell, all the manufactured stuff, all the manufacturing process that actually takes them to come to life, uh, so that you can develop the communication protocol between the two groups. Um, I think that that is um, maybe not the typical profile of a startup entrepreneur. If Netflix' true competitor is Sleep, who's your or what, or what is your true competitor? What are you competing with? Brands will always need packaging to get product from point A to point B. It won't always be boxes. If there was like a black swan event and like, and all the paper pulp that makes boxes was like diseased or something and there was going to be no more boxes in 2020, I don't think there'd be no more e-commerce in 2020. There would just be no more boxes. People would be f- figuring out every other form factor. And Lumi is dedicated to selling every form factor and everything that an e-commerce brand might need. So a Black Swan event and packaging, I don't think would affect Lumi. I think our, our competition is the status quo. Like the status quo is extremely powerful in this space. People have been buying these types of things and working with manufacturers through brokers and distributors for hundreds of years. It's effectively like one of the oldest business models that exists. So we have to truly provide value through the software we're building. Otherwise, it'll be very hard to grow a business that supersedes like the largest brokers and distributors, which are pretty big. So like there's packaging distributors that measure their revenue at like four billion a year. Wow. But they have thousands of employees, like they're hoofing it, you know, like it's feet on the street yeah. style stuff. But um they're big businesses with that traditional model. So if we want to get to that scale and beyond and do it quicker, as well as providing like actual tangible value to our customers, we have to get the software and the communication protocol between brands and manufacturers correct. Is Flexport a close analogy? Or like how are yeah, they similar yeah, or different yeah. to what you're doing? Flexport's a great example of a company making a really good amount of noise in the space around how logistics and supply chain can be a breeding ground for a really big company and that software can play a really big role. They're disintermediating the brokers and distributors in that space. I think that it, it's a good analogy, but we operate in a far more fragmented space where we are actually managing the process end to end. Packaging is a storefront. What do you, like, what do you mean by that? I often say packaging is the new storefront. Brands only have very few physical touch points with their consumers these days when they ship directly to people's homes. So it sounds almost like starkly obvious, but if you ship a product directly to someone's house and they ordered online or on their phone, all they saw was like a screen version of your company for like, you know, moments or minutes and then whatever you shipped them. And the product obviously needs to stand supreme as memorable in their mind, but whatever else you shipped them, if there's a box or something else to that, that's the only other tangible thing they got from you. So you don't have shelf space. You can't puff, you know, ice cream scented stuff into the air around your pants or whatever, like in Nordstrom's anymore. Um, Nordstrom, you have to make them feel that feeling um, in a cardboard box or an envelope, which is a lot less real estate. Yeah. What is the a world in which 
Lumi or a company like Lumi isn't a multi-billion dollar company. Like it just seems so obvious that it's going to be one. But people said no to you at one point. Yeah. Fundraise. Like what, what did they say? We, I think that um, we've gotten. Expen- I forget what they said, but what's the best argument as to why yeah. the company would be? I think we've gotten exponentially better at telling the story and the story has evolved. So like to be fair to earlier investors, our first pitch was all about custom printing and manufacturing, but we, we hadn't even landed on packaging in 2015 coming out of White Combinator. Um, we were selling rubber stamps. I, I'd prefer not to go down this dark road. <laughs> um, so why were you doing that? How did you evolve? Like what did yeah, you figure out? We truly did a lot of like listening to users, um, figuring out how people were growing their businesses. And we, and then you just made things people wanted. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, we, we did make things people wanted sometimes. And other times we made things people didn't want. Yeah. <laughs> and then we killed those things. Yes. That would, yeah, I think that's the first year of the business actually is <laughs> making things people didn't want. We evolved the story quite a bit. It's come to encompass so much of the manufacturing ecosystem. Started with brands have a hard time ordering custom stuff. Very vague. Brands have a hard time branding themselves. And we want to help them with the stuff that they need to grow their companies, not just their swag stuff. So like in the early days, we knew we didn't want to make t-shirts, but for some reason we knew we did want to make like, you know, shopping bags for their store or something. What's the big difference? One is necessary and the other isn't. Like to growing the company and scaling the company, the unit economics of the business. So those were early decisions. I think that when people like don't resonate with our mission. It's probably because we did a bad job describing it. I'm I'm kind of joking, but I think every entrepreneur knows that like they've done that. And I think that packaging on the surface, like if I come in a room and as I've done to many unwitting VCs who have taken meetings with me and I just like wax poetic about like how packaging is a big deal and here's all the problems and they've got brokers and whatever. I think it can strike you as just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, another industry with middlemen and like a cool website. I think that when we help someone understand that the model that we are building and the communication between these two groups of people who that has been fraught, so fraught that multi-billion dollar layers of these, you know, cross has developed that this model hasn't been given a chance that we are pioneering the model and actually developing software that truly helps these two groups communicate no matter where they are in the world, then it starts to unhook like, oh, okay, I get it. It's not just like disintermediation with a cool website. That, that I think, is when we don't do a good job pitching ourselves, what you yeah. can imagine. Let's talk more about the manufacturing ecosystem as you describe it. Like, what is a 3PL? So a 3PL stands for third-party logistics. And it's really third-party logistics partner is most of our brands who work with Lumi also work with a 3PL. So it's not a competitive model to Lumi's. They are the people actually shipping out the product. So this is something if, if people are really trying to learn, like at the very beginning, what Lumi does, we source and manage the manufacturing of the packaging. Our job is done when we deliver it to your distribution center, to your fulfillment center, to your 3PL. So most of these brands work with Lumi, work with a 3PL. The 3PL is when your custom boxes and everything lands at your 3PL. Lumi is done. That partner 
sees all your web orders coming in for the day, packs the boxes that Lumi supplied with your actual product, the customer orders, slaps a label on it, sends it out to the customer. So they're actually handling all your shipments. So as you can imagine, we work very closely with the 3PLs as well. And we also work very closely with private label manufacturers. So something else that I don't know how many people know about you know, all the different machinations of um, models for launching a direct-to-consumer company, but a lot of them are using private label manufacturers. Like, let's say you decide, I'm going to start a toothbrush company. You probably, your first move is probably not to set up a manufacturing facility for toothbrushes from scratch. You probably contract a toothbrush manufacturer. My first move is to call it Warby Parker for toothbrushes. <laughs> that is probably your first yeah. move in your deck. Raised $2 million. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In your deck, it probably says that. And then though, you would also say, and I've locked down a contract with a great toothbrush manufacturer. So sometimes brands will have that toothbrush manufacturer manage their packaging too or order it for them because they want that to be turnkey. We work in that situation too. And this is where the dashboard and the platform becomes so critical because no matter what your model is, we can service you where oftentimes we will be in contact and develop the relationship with the brand, but then it might be the toothbrush manufacturer, the contract manufacturer that actually orders from Lumi. Like they order all the supplies from Lumi directly to them. So there's... I think, and this, I think this is where you start to understand someone has got to be building uh, the interface for how all these brands, different supply chain choices work. Um, because imagine trying to pull that off just by saying like, Hey, you know, toothbrush manufacturer, I found a company in Alibaba last night. Can you hit them up? Like that's going to turn into a mess. And that mess is going to turn into your customer's experience. Right. Is network manufacturing basically what you've been describing? Is like a fancy word or what is that? I refer to our manufacturing network as all the manufacturers we've onboarded and that we have data on, um, which we use in various ways to make sure that the correct job is always going to the correct facility. I think that this is where things get very interesting because the typical model in the world, and there's a lot of sourcing and procurement platforms that will say like, hey, you want to sell toothbrushes? Eric, I got you handled. I'll make the toothbrush, the box, I'll make everything for you turnkey. And they want to just handle everything. And they're usually relying on a very small subset of manufacturers that they have personal relationships or experience with from previous jobs and previous like life experience. So there's just a lot of business models that give um, companies like a pinhole access to some manufacturing capacity. And I don't think there's very many working on giving them broad access to what the world can offer. Because I'll share something with you that sounds, again, super obvious, but I think is kind of profound. The manufacturing capacity of the world doesn't change that much year over year. There's just so much of it and it can be understood. And if you're launching a brand, don't you kind of want to punch into like all that's available and be able to make quick decisions? Like I want to open UK, you know, shipments next year and just, ha- just have like the peace of mind that that's well researched. That is a pretty rare thing these days. Yeah. So where are the billion dollar opportunities in manufacturing? Like if you were starting a fund that was just focused on the manufacturing ecosystem, what other startups might emerge or what are the other different spaces even? I think the manufacturing ecosystem is unique and not unique. You have to have an understanding of the manufacturers themselves and their stressors and pressures to run their companies, I think, to do most of the interesting models. 
I think that the thing to keep in mind if you are considering investments in this space is how does the company that you're possibly investing in make money? Now, I know as an intelligent investor, you're already thinking about that. But when I look at other companies, quote unquote, in this space, helping brands source things or get something manufactured, something that gives me a lot of confidence in our approach is that our, the way that we make money, having margin on product, but having that be very fair market rate and us actually having price advantage and leverage on the manufacturing network makes us very aligned with the brands that we work with. And it means we can have very long-term relationships with them. We aren't trying to charge them for software. The software comes to them for free. We aren't trying to charge the manufacturers. So a lot of the models people are thinking about are like trying to connect you with a manufacturer and then charge the manufacturer for the connection. It's not wrong or bad. It's just like, is that a is that is that a pathway to a multi-billion dollar company? Because you're trying to monetize relationships again. And I just don't think that monetizing relationships builds a multi-billion dollar business in this space. And a lot of people are out there saying otherwise. Yeah. And if you want to do that, just be a VC. But <laughs> I mean, the, there's a lot of business models for monetizing relationships that are not bad, but like... But, but they're not billion dollar opportunities. Yeah, they're not billion dollar opportunities. And also it runs out of steam, right? Like you, if you aren't leveraging data in an interesting way, if you aren't building meaningful software that provides value to brands and makes them want to keep using it, how do you keep growing past... 100 million, 500 million. When I have a picture of the manufacturing ecosystem or startup ecosystem, what are even other types of businesses or like how do you sort of map out the different subsectors? If you, so if you think of some of the different business models going on in logistics, like a company like Shippo aggregating ship volume, helping companies easily print out shipping labels, but getting better rates because they're aggregating demand again, but through the carriers, um, they're doing other really interesting things as well. There's, um, companies doing Things around trucking that are really cool where they're soaking up excess trucking capacity, almost kind of like Uber for trucking. Uber's also doing Uber for trucking. <laughs> so there's that. But th- so I think there's a lot of people thinking heavily about how do the models that we've seen work in the kind of like social internet, a lot of things have been very successful over the past 10 years. How do we start applying them to the massive industries of shipping, logistics, supply chain manufacturing? Because when you look at the, the massiveness of what like manufacturing is one of the biggest industries in the whole world, like in every country, it's big. Like there's no country where it's like, oh yeah, like no, that country doesn't need stuff. Like it, it's even countries have a weaker situation for the manufacturing. Like it's still one of the largest, largest industries. So I think people are figuring out how to apply models to, to this space. So, you know, in this space, you've also got the modern 3PL partners. I think that, um, there was headway made early on by a company called Shipwire that got acquired by Ingram Micro. Um, that almost kind of feels like old news now, but you've got modern partners like ShipBob, um, and others doing incredible work, making the 3PL experience have better software, easier for brands to onboard, um, all sorts of great things like that. So you've got like hardcore logistics stuff. You've got people serving direct to consumer market. You've got, you've got other things like happy returns is helping the returns stack of running a direct-to-consumer business. So often when you click like, I want to return something um, on, a, on a, you know, your favorite 
e-commerce site, it actually might be auto-directing to the happy, you don't know this, but to like the happy returns um, interface. And they're managing the entire reverse logistics process is what people call it, meaning things coming back <laughs> to companies. Um, so I think you, there's definitely a stack emerging of services to serve direct-to-consumer companies. I think of us as heavily participating in that, like Lumi is a part of that stack. But I also think that manufacturing at large is obviously bigger than direct-to-consumer. It Manufacturing and, and logistics affects everything we buy, not just what we buy from e-commerce or from direct-to-consumer startups. Keeping your adventure hat on, if we were looking at the future of e-commerce and what your thesis would be there, I mean, one VC I talked to has a sort of anti-e-commerce thesis where he says, you want to invest in businesses that are hard to start years zero to three, but then easy to scale years three to 10, like Airbnb yep. might be an example. Hard, yep. hard to bootstrap, but once you have it, it's easy to scale. Whereas like all birds might be the opposite, like easy yep. to get off the ground, really hard to, hard to scale. Maybe Lumi's in that first category. How do you think about e-commerce, like putting your venture hat on? Do you accept that framing? I think that that's, a, I think that's a good framing. The other thing I'm hearing a lot about and, um, thinking through is, is every CPG vertical, uh, meaning consumer packaged goods like that a Procter and Gamble has, are, is every vertical able to be turned into a multi-billion dollar space? Like, can there be, you know, a toothpaste startup that goes public? Um, or will they need to have, will they need to become the next Procter and Gamble, meaning they have an entire product portfolio with different brands in order to create a company large enough to be that big? I, I think the jury's out, and of course it varies by category. You've got like a Warby Parker that has really large valuations and large revenues in one vertical, but then you have other ones struggling. I think we're seeing the emergence of people deciding that they're going to start companies and be e-commerce experts, but they're not pinning their hat on a single brand. Um, they're deciding to start the company with a portfolio strategy, like telling an investor, hey, we have like... In year one, we're going to launch these three brands. And if two of them are successes and one of them is a dud, in year two, the dud will be gone and we're like doing two more. And I see that happening in different verticals like healthcare and, and whatnot. But I think that that's like an interesting emergence of people already beginning to question how big can, indiv can the individual, um, like single product companies become? I don't have the answer, but I think it's an interesting uh, set of questions. I also think that we are like in a really nascent period still for e-commerce where as much as it sounds kind of like easy to poo-poo, like can every product category really be a big company? But then you're like, I don't know, how's Colgate doing? How's Tide these days? Like, I don't actually have these answers, so you should look this up. <laughs> they're, they're huge, right? um, but they're, but they're, they're definitely big companies. Exactly how they're doing financially, I don't know. But I mean, Colgate's one of the biggest companies in the world, but they also have diversified. Colgate's one of the biggest companies in the world? We should look it up, but I think it's in the top like 10 or 12 wow. product companies. So why isn't there the Warby Barker for toothpaste? There is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's a, there's a, there's someone dabbling or starting a company for almost every vertical. It's something that is a really fun element of running Lumi is that we see trends. Like we'll see in one, you know, three month period, like five companies, um, apply to Lumi who are all doing, 
you know, uh, like socks or plus size apparel or like things. And, and I, I think that they all can do quite well. Like, is there a company you've seen where you're like, Oh man, I wish I could invest in that or I should invest in that or I am investing in that. And if so, you don't say the name of the company, yeah. but what do they do? So I think I have seen opportunity. I've seen companies that I think uh, would make very interesting investments. It's usually because I think that their distribution and go to market strategy is very interesting. I know a lot of direct-to-consumer companies can struggle with their cost of acquisition um, when it focuses solely on something like Facebook or something. And so I think that there's companies that are approaching stuff from an interesting perspective, like peer-based selling, you know, like having, there's brands that are, have like athletic instructors, like as their sales teams or like something where they have an approach angle and like, here's why we are going to be able to reach a critical mass of customers and build a brand value. And we're not just going to pay to play the whole time. Like, sure, we'll pay to play because if the numbers check out, sure, like that's a good idea. But our strategy isn't just pay to play to acquire customers. So I think those are the opportunities where I see where I'm like most intrigued. Yeah. What is structural engineering and how the unit economics of DDC brands can improve with better packaging? Structural engineering at Lumi is us actually looking at the packaging you're using and questioning how it's actually put together, what materials you're using and how it's engineered, meaning like what size is the box, what dimensions, how is it assembled? So this can affect your entire cost structure of your packaging. So you, a couple of simple things, I'll give you a geeky piece of information. Corrugate fluting, like cardboard, like thicknesses, it's called fluting. And there's B flute is a standard. Um, there's also a fluting called E flute. E flute is a little bit thinner. Like if you get a little box and it's like really kind of nice and crisp, it might be E flute. E flute is just as strong as B flute from a puncture resistance standpoint and stuff, but it takes up 30% less, 30% less thick. So imagine you can switch your boxes from B flute to E flute. 30% more boxes fit on a pallet. That saves you a tremendous amount of warehouse space. That saves you a tremendous amount in transit. 30% 30% less space on a pallet quite literally translates into now it ships for 30% less. <laughs> like the boxes themselves um, on a pallet. Then it probably weighs less. So if you can get the envelope of the package down smaller, all the carriers these days charge based on something they call, they call dimensional weight shipping, meaning they don't just charge you for how much it weighs, they charge you for how much space it takes up because otherwise you're going to fill their trucks up. So these, if you take that into account, shrinking inches, even millimeters off of a packaging profile can save the brand, depending on their size, thousands, hundreds of thousand dollars, millions of dollars in freight. So as a general rule, brands spend more, like two to three times as much, on shipping their product to customers as they do on the packaging. So if something that we can affect on the packaging level reduces their spend on shipping, we like we could say you're we can get you this box for five cents less. Or we can say the box is gonna cost the same or maybe it costs five cents less, but our engineers figured out a way to make it twenty percent less space and you're going to save a hundred thousand dollars on your shipping next year. Leveraging that kind of data to truly affect how these companies operate is something else that's core to our thesis. Like packaging is just a gateway to how these companies function, how they're, how they spend money, how they ship their products. And by being their core partner on that, we can affect other decision-making internally. Why do DTC companies struggle when it comes to sustainability? 
Packaging in general, but then also sustainability in packaging has no standards. It's one of these things that everyone is talking about it. Like it's a really good idea because it is like we are very committed to it and have a lot of internal um, structures to support it. But what does it even mean? What when when people have a hard time quantifying it, it can be very hard to pull off. So I think that is the core reason brands have a hard time executing on it because it's amorphous. So something that we're working on Lumi is a set of standards for good, better, best. Um, also, how can you have the most impact on the sustainability of your supply chain? Um, spoiler alert, usually it's not just like what the customer sees. It's not like, oh, we moved from 30% recycled content on this box to 50%. Yes, that's cool. But potentially, but imagine if you're shipping that 50% recycled content box across the ocean. <laughs> Spoiler, that sucks. <laughs> so like, you know, you, the, the impact of what you're doing, um, is very multi, um, multivariable. And we both in the interface and through other things we do at Lumi are trying to show the brands the impact of their decision making because then it empowers them to make better choices. This is again something that software is really good at. The humans, you know, taking orders on phones are pretty bad at. Like, oh yeah, it would be totally better to use a little bit more recycled content. Meanwhile, like the suggestion of, have you noticed how many transit miles your packaging took this year? Or, um, you know, the impact of air freight, et cetera. Yeah. So how does uh, someone who self-identifies as fun and funny do something so boring? <laughs> yeah, on the surface, I get it. Packing tape, boxes, it's not what five-year-olds say, like, I want to grow up and be that person. I think that what keeps it really fun is that the brands that we work with are very inspiring. They're out there challenging the status quo of what we all buy and consume every day. The manufacturers that we work with are really hardworking people that power the economy of like our country, other countries, all the countries they operate in. So both sides of the equation are very inspirational. And then the concept that we are truly eliminating waste and fueling something that we refer to as responsible manufacturing, which we have a definition for, I think it really helps people understand why work on this. Because if you can transition brands to responsible manufacturing, um, reduce, you know, reduce their transit miles, all this stuff has a really profound impact on the world. What's, uh, what's slapstick supply chain? I, I do a YouTube show called Shipping Things. It's about shipping things. And the genre of the show is slapstick supply chain um, because it's about supply chain. And I share a lot of very factual core information, but I do it in a humorous way. And so it's like Buster Keaton is a famous slapstick comedian. So I say that I'm like Buster Keaton meets Diane Keaton meets boxes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I, I think they're really gives people a vibe. Yeah. Yeah. No, I really I really love what I want to close on is this boring and hard thing. Yeah, yeah. I love that because, you know, I, I give a lot of career advice on Twitter. You don't follow me, I follow you. <laughs> cool. Awkward. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tell people to pursue things that other people aren't pursuing or just won't pursue. Yeah. And boring and hard are two really good reasons to do that. Going down a rabbit hole that you feel like no one else would go down is a valid human effort. There might be nothing down there. Yeah, we've done plenty of things where we go down the rabbit hole and there's nothing down there. But 
when you go down, you're like an explorer, like you're kind of like a pioneer, like when you're starting a business. And if you you can't pioneer yourself on like a well-trodden hiking path in LA where like there's like water fountains every 60 meters, you've got to pioneer yourself where people look over there and they're like, uh, should I really go over there? Well, it's kind of like dry and hot and awful. And then someone's like, no, like, I, like no one's going to go there. Like, let me figure this out because you know, that that is worth it even if you don't find anything because no one else has gone there. The thing that I think freaks people out about it is that it's a very high probability of failure. But guess, but it's like, it's just like, you know, I mean, there's so many sayings about this, but high probability of failure is going somewhere. Some other people aren't willing to go. A hundred percent certainty of failure is going into a bloody um, bloody ocean of competition where everyone's been and you're not that unique. So you're choosing between high probability of failure and certain probability of failure. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. We should have more documentation around like spaces that <clears throat> people haven't gone because they're either too hard or boring and like what people have tried in those spaces. Yeah. Because someone's listening to this and like, yeah, yeah, I should find something that's boring and hard, but, but what? You know, I, I don't want to be too self-aggrandizing, but I think you have to have enough energy to pull it off. Like you have to go down, like go to that desert or go down a dark hole, start finding a couple interesting things. Be like, oh my gosh, this gemstone's kind of cool. And then you have to be able to like yell back and be like, guys, <laughs> guys, I'm down here. And actually I'm finding some cool stuff. And then, and then everyone's like, ah, I don't know. It doesn't look that cool. It looks kind of dark and grimy. And then you're like, no, no, I swear I found a cool gemstone. Like, so you have to be willing to go where it seems boring, uncomfortable, like where people won't go. And then you have to be willing to like put your heart and soul into convincing other people to go. And I, and I think those two things can be daunting. That's a good, good place to end. Jesse, this has been a fantastic episode. Where can people learn more about you, learn more about Lumi and what should we stay tuned for? You can find us at lumi.com. It's just L-U-M-I.com. We always have jobs posted at lumi.com slash jobs. I'm Jesse Janae. I have those social handles. And you can feel free to reach out to me directly on Twitter if you have questions about business or life or anything. Yeah, I mean, any last words of wisdom if you were the Jesse Janae listening to this? <laughs> I think too many people just fail to get started and fail to be willing to fail so repetitiously that they actually figure stuff out. Um, and it's kind of a shame because I think so many smart people would be great at failing spectacularly and great at learning things. But there's something about us that just keeps us wanting like to succeed. What is that? <laughs> but I, I just, I just, if people got a little more comfortable with failure, I think that it would go a long way and you don't, you don't succeed or fail at anything before you start trying. Lumi is, is on a great path, but you failed at a bunch of things, right? I failed at so many things. And also, I started failing very early. You've been doing this for 15 years? Yeah. I started my first business as a 16-year-old. You're both like 5 and 80. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm both, right. I'm 80 in my wisdom. I'm 5. But I, I started failing very early. I started a business really young. And I think that that – it shouldn't be scary to anyone because I think of risk as a muscle. Yeah. That people are not exercising effectively. Like, if why would you expect if you want to like have a six pack that like you could not exercise for six months? Like, really go for it. Just exercise like twenty four hours a day, and then you have a six pack. No, of course not. 
That's just like people saying, I'm preparing to work on my idea. I'm going to think about working on it for another six months. I'm planning on it. I'm doing research. That whole time is a time that you are not getting a six pack. So thinking of risk as a muscle and asking yourself how often you're actually exercising it, it could be in small ways, like that hard email to a mentor or like, but whatever it is, like a day goes by, you haven't taken a risk, you're atrophying. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.